You guys can clap for that. That was a good. Uh, no. no, thank you again to AJ and to everybody who participated in that this past week to uh, to put that together. Um, and that video it serves as a uh, a good segue uh, into the sermon, which will be the second installment of our four week series on the church and on the church's vision. And we're calling that blueprint. Uh, Christ-centered worship, Christ-centered community, Christ-centered service, and Christ-centered mission. So if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to grab them and turn to John chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, as always, feel free to grab a blue pew Bible in front of you, and you'll find John 17 on page 903. Um, So last week, we covered Christ-centered worship, and this morning, we're going to look at Christ-centered community. And um, if you have been at Grace, we have routinely highlighted our Grace group ministry as really, uh, it's not the only way community is done here, but it is the primary ministry to get involved with the community at Grace. Um, And joining a group is really a step that says um, that Grace is not a place I go to, it is a people that I am a part of. Church is not a place I go to, it's a people that I'm a part of, and it's important for fellowship and for uh, life-on-life, transparent relationships, Um, also a place where you will be encouraged and you will be challenged um, with application, application of what the Word says to your life. So many of our groups do studies, as you heard in the video, based on the sermon, um, where we can apply God's Word, lay it down in our lives um, throughout the week. So um, I have said before that I do not preach sermons so they get remembered. I preach them so they get applied. And I want you to think about that because there is a very real difference. I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, heck, I don't remember my sermon outline points like three days later. All right? Like, I, there's no way that you're just going to be able to week after week memorize every point of the sermon, and that's not the point. I'm saying that is okay. It's not that we're doing something wrong. Because the preaching ministry of the local church, which has been central to the church for 2,000 years, is for ongoing nourishment and edification, not for memory. Uh, So the best illustration I can use to explain this is is food. All right, food you physically eat. Okay, unless you're one of the very few people who have a crazy memory, I can guarantee that you do not remember what you had for dinner on Tuesday, February 21st, 2015. All right, and if that's like the day you got engaged or something and like you like remember the meal, okay, I guarantee you don't remember what you had on Wednesday the 22nd, all right? And, and, but here's the thing, just because you don't remember what you ate, that does not mean that the meal was pointless or that eating in general is pointless if you can't remember each meal. But rather, it gave you what you needed for nourishment. It gave you food that was applied to your body to help you live. Sermons preaching ministry in the same way within the corporate gathering, they're not meant to be remembered. Now, there may be one or two that are so vivid in your mind that you will never forget them, just like there's one or two meals across your life that you will never forget, like Burns Steakhouse in Tampa Bay. Go to Burns, all right? Like, I will never forget Burns Steakhouse Tampa Bay, but but just because there's one or two doesn't mean that's going to be normal all around. Rather, the normal routine of hearing the word of God proclaimed, is for soul nourishment. It is to apply to our lives and help us be healthy and grow spiritually. And we think that that's, you, you can do that alone to a certain degree, but it is best done in community. 
It is best done with others coming alongside you. And so Grace Group's a great avenue for that to happen. I hope you'd be encouraged to look into it this morning. Um, But back to the series. Um, So as a church, um, every September, uh, we need to just zoom out and be reminded um, through God's word what, what the blueprint is. Like, like why we do what we do and why being part of a church is the greatest, most cosmic purpose you could have. And, and so here's the thing. When, when I say community, like that's not just a church term. Like anytime you just hear community, immediately everybody's on board. Everybody knows that there is a universal desire to do things with others. And even the most nonconformist, rebellious, right, anti-establishment kind of people, you know what they want? They want to find other nonconformist, rebellious, anti-establishment kind of people. We are just going to drift to find others that we can do life with um, in, in accordance to our passions and our interests and our hobbies. We just don't want to do it alone. And so whether in here or outside these doors, like everybody's in on community. And, and so I've, I've done this before just to kind of hammer this point home, but I decided to go back uh, to this website this week just to show this, all right? So there is a website called meetup.com. Legitimate big website. We had a member of our church that was uh, worked there, like great rising tech company, and it is exactly what you think it is. It is a place where communities can be established and we could just meet up based upon a common interest. And so every once in a while, I just like and going. What are the latest, kind of newest meetup groups that you can be a part of, especially in North Jersey, okay? So um, you could, right now, on your phone, go join the Sophisticated Singles of North Jersey, No clue what that means, all right? I, I mean, maybe you're classier, you're cultured, but, but here's what I do know. Um, there's 2,000 of them. And I'm pretty sure I would be rejected, okay? I know for one reason, but I'm definitely not sophisticated either, okay? So um, there is the Lunch Bunch of Northern New Jersey, 445 members. And again, literally just what you think it is, people who like going out to lunch, like, I could roll with that. Like, I might have joined that. I might be, like, the latest member. I don't know. Just throughout the week, Monday to Friday, just find a place to meet up for lunch. There is a community of LLB fans in Paramus. German speakers of Fairlawn. <laughs> Meditation in Maplewood. And this is the last one I'll do. There is a group for exploring New Jersey's swamps. <laughs> and listen, it has... 1,000 members. There's definitely one of you that are a member in here. (laughs) Listen, community, it's universal. People like being part of a bigger group with like-minded interests. And, and, And so in that sense, when we talk about the blueprint for a church, like, there's no, it's no wonder that community is going to play a part. And this isn't just us and our staff and our elders thinking this through. This is according to the Bible. Community is crucial. It's vital. It's what God uses to help his saints persevere to the end. And so I want to address out of John 17 what the Bible says 
is the most important community in the world and what God's hope for that community is. Okay, So John 17, uh, the entire chapter is a prayer. It's a prayer between Jesus and the Father. And it's at the end of uh, Jesus' earthly ministry. It actually takes place on the very night he would be arrested. And so the setting is they're in this upper room, right, where the Passover took place. Uh, They just had their meal. And now Jesus just gets into this extended amount of time of teaching, this final teaching to his now 11 disciples that are left. Because at this point in the night, Judas has already slipped out the back door. He's off to go get the authorities. He's off to betray his Savior. And so John Chapter 14, 15, and 16 is this uninterrupted time of teaching uh, where Jesus just seemingly covers it all, right? He gets it all in on this final night. He affirms that he is the way, the truth, the life. He promises the arrival of the Holy Spirit when he is gone. He urges and affirms to these men that he is the true vine and urges them to abide in him. He warns them that the world is going to hate them. He then further explains the work of the Holy Spirit that will be coming upon them. He then encourages them in their coming sorrow, which will turn to joy. And then he says, do not fear. I have overcome the world. He says, I did it. He hadn't even gone to the cross yet, but he's already talking in past tense. He goes, I was victorious here. And then after this teaching, I'm sure his disciples were just like deer in headlights. Like you read it and you're overwhelmed. Like actually being there, hearing him just say all these things, I think they just felt like they were drinking from a fire hose. And so I think he just sees kind of like their dazzled looks. And so now he turns upward and he says a prayer for them. This plea for divine intervention on their behalf, he, he intercedes for them. And this prayer, which is commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer, it's nothing short of fascinating. Because it's the only full-length prayer of Jesus that is recorded in the entire Bible. Okay, so the other Gospels, they speak routinely of Jesus, how he would get away to pray, how he was committed to prayer. The other Gospels record Jesus teaching the disciples how to pray. You should pray like this. But John 17 is really the only intimate glimpse into this prayerful relationship between the Father and the Son. And it's fascinating. Because prayer reveals what someone wants most. Prayer is a litmus test for how much we care about something. How much we really care about something will be revealed by how often and how passionately we pray for it. And so it's no small thing that in this final intercessory prayer on the night he would be arrested, Jesus focuses on praying for community and for the nature of the community of his people. So follow along with me in John chapter 17. We're going to pick it up in verse 10 and read through to the end, verse 26. Jesus speaking, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. If you notice... This prayer is almost redundant. It's wordy and it's kind of circular and it keeps coming back to some of the same things. And so you, on first glance, you're like, Jesus, you could have done that in like half the time. But then you're like, wait, I'm questioning Jesus. Okay, no, never mind. Like, thank you, Jesus. That's a great prayer, okay? Um, but he, here's the thing. Here's why. Because his purpose for his prayer is, is two-toned or, or, or multi-layered. He prays specifically for these 11 men who are circled around him in the days ahead. But then did you notice verse 20? He pivoted outward. And he said to every man, woman, or child, to all who would believe in me as a result of the ministry of these 11. So this prayer, Grace Church, is for us. We are part of a long line of faithful believers that come after these 11. This is not just for others. This is for us. We would do well to pray for ears to hear this morning. And I recognize that um, John 17, you could do an entire sermon series on what we just read. All right, so I'm going to have to restrain myself and not cover everything that is in there. But I'm going to focus on three major things. Three major things that Jesus intercedes for on behalf of this original Christ-centered community and for all communities thereafter. Three things. First, Christ-centered community are a people that are kept. A Christ-centered community are a people that are kept. Um, verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. Verse 15, I do not ask them that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory. Christ-centered community are a people that are kept. 
that are kept in his name, that are kept in the faith, that are, that are kept and helped to persevere in the security of their salvation, that are kept from turning their back on Christ. And these 11 disciples are about to go through a trial that is going to severely test their faith in a way they could not have even imagined. Hours after this prayer, Jesus would be in the garden. Judas would come up with his cadre, and he would be arrested. Arrested thanks to the betrayal of a man who has been traveling with them over the past three years, who heard what they heard, who did what they did, and now here he is on the other side. Their teacher and leader would be handed over to the authorities. He would be falsely accused. He would be framed with blasphemy. And he would be sentenced to death on a Roman cross. And Jesus knows that even though like, he's literally told them this. like He told them what's going to happen. But, but, but they don't quite get it. And like, you can't really blame them. If we were in their, we were in their spot, like, I don't think we would quite get it. These 11 men, they're all going to abandon him over the next 24 hours. Even Peter, the one who aggressively proclaimed that he would never do it, even Peter would deny him three times. But we see here the unwavering confidence that Jesus has because he intercedes for those who he knows are about to turn their back on him. Because he knows three days later he will rise again. He will be victorious. He will appear to them again. And then he would be with them for 40 days, but then he would leave again. And this time he would ascend to the right hand of the Father. And, and they would be confused and they would be troubled, even though he has told them, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. It's better that I go. I will dwell within all of you through the Holy Spirit, through his power and his witness. But think about the enormous importance it is for these 11 men to be kept in the faith. For them to be kept. Listen, the salvation of the world, your salvation, my salvation, hinged on these 11 ordinary men being faithful to the call to be witnesses and make disciples. And in that upper room, these 11 guys, man, they were just a ragtag bunch they have learned much, but they still had much to learn. And yet Jesus is expectant because he's seeing through the lens of the Holy Spirit where there's hope and there's faith and there's love. And so this prayer is that they would be kept in the faith. But there's another angle to it if you read it in the passage. Um, he says, I want them to be kept in the world. So if you remember in Acts, in, in the ascension, as Jesus is about to go, do you remember the disciples asking, like, Jesus, can, can we come with you? Like, like I, I don't want to be here. This doesn't look too good. Like, just take us with you. Why are you leaving us? He's like, you're going to come and restore this kingdom right now, right? Like, you're king right now. You're not leaving again, are you? And Jesus says, it's not, it's not the plan. Jesus prays here. He says explicitly, Father, I don't want you to take them out of the world. I want you to keep them here. And I want them, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to engage the world while resisting the temptation that's going to come from the world. Okay, so if you've been around church in a while, if you've grown up in church culture, there's a phrase that like, you knew coming out of the womb. All right, And the phrase is, Christians ought to be in the world, but not what? Of the world. 
be in the world, not of the world. That phrase, John 17. Because he knows that we're going to go through seasons of life where we're just going to ask, when's the pain going to go away? Like, why can't we just be with him? Why is he leaving us here and there's so much suffering and there's so much pain and there's so much sorrow? Why do we have to wait? I mean, think about just the hostile world these 11 are going to face once Jesus left. The odds were stacked against them. A Jewish system that wanted to crush this movement, so they crucified its leader. What do you think they're going to do to his little uh, pawns that follow him? A Roman Empire that would look to deal a crushing blow to anything that seemed to threaten its power. And here these 11 stand, kept in the world. Odds stacked against them, and yet they would be the very means through which God would turn the world upside down. Because the power that was in them as a Christ-centered community was far greater than the power that was going to try and pin them down. And we'll see why they had to be kept later, but for now, Jesus says, Father, keep them. Keep them engaged. Keep them dialed in. Keep their faith strong even while they're in and amongst the fallen world where Satan has authority, where the presence of sin is large, where brokenness still exists, not even in the world, but even uh, to a certain degree in their own lives. Presence is still there even though the power of sin has been broken by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's because of this, church, that we know our call is not to form, form a bubble around ourselves. The call of the church is not to close rank and hang on tight and make this into an us versus them until glory comes. But we know with joy set before us, we can engage the world. We can be in it. We can be amongst it knowing that God will sustain us. And when hardship comes for every Christ-centered community, like it has come for these 11, like it has come for 2,000 years, like it will come in the years ahead, the tendency is just going to want to be like, all right, I'm done. Let's go. Let's speed this process up. I just want to be with him already. But a Christ-centered community fights against the urge to shy away from the world that God has called them to reach. And our confidence grows when we know that the world will never overpower his church. When Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't stand against it. He wasn't saying that with his fingers crossed. Because of the victory that has already been won, you can't undo a victory in the past. And so we know the pressure is off. Like we are free to engage in love and we're free to engage in truth and we're free to serve and reach a world regardless of how they're going to treat us in return. Like, like think about it. We are called to play a part in a mission that will not fail. You can't fail. The worst they can do is take your life and that's not a failure. As Christ has shown, how great is that? How freeing is that? That doesn't hinge on what we do. It hinges on what Christ did. And what he did was declare victory. And now we just get to play a part in spreading the word. When the pressure is off, when the pressure is on, we'll, we'll tense up. When the pressure, pressure is off, we're free to go. So quick poll. Does anyone in here have experience like cliff rock climbing? Like just climbing up a cliff? 
We got one. We got two. We got three. All right. Correct me afterwards when I'm about to say what I'm about to say. All right. I've never been rock climbing. But I'm pretty sure I know that scaling the side of a cliff would be way more enjoyable if you're harnessed in as opposed to free climbing. Like, either way, you got to move your hands and legs, right? Like, either way, like, you got to climb to get up to the top of that mountain. But the pressure is off when you know, hey, if I slip on this part, I'm going to be kept from falling off the cliff by this harness. In the same way, church, when we're called to go, yeah, we got to move our legs and feet. We got to get ourselves up the mountain, but we have a harness that takes the pressure off. We have the guarantee of getting to the top, and we have the guarantee of being kept by the power of the Son, power of the Father through the sacrifice of the Son and, and the witness of the Holy Spirit. We will be kept. And so Jesus, he's not saying this prayer like biting his nails. He's not like, Father, I don't know if they're going to make it. I think our eternal plan is, is kind of on the rocks right now. It's that he knows that God will be faithful to deliver on his promises. His promise to be the great shepherd who will never lose one of his sheep. His promise to be the leader of a Christ-centered community who will not lose any of its members. And so on days, um, on whole months, seasons of life where we feel like, man, my feet are slipping. As a church, our legs are getting a little weak. We're struggling to hold our footing here. We're, we're tempted to bail. We're tempted to turn our back on this whole faith thing. We're tempted to turn our back on community and the church. We can rest in the truth that God does not lose anyone. And no one of his true disciples will get wrestled from his grip. And so our prayer ought to be every single day. I know it's a prayer I pray every single day is, Lord, keep me. Keep me. I'm prone to wander. My feet are slipping. But I know you're faithful to deliver on your promises. Father, keep me. Keep this church. Help us stay afoot. Give us the courage to stay engaged in this world. We need you to keep us here. That's first. The Christ-centered community are people that are kept. Second, a Christ-centered community are a people that are unified. The second major plea from the high priestly prayer is that his disciples would be unified. In fact, in fact, verse 11 goes on to say, Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. And then again for all those who come after, verse 20, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. They may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And then finally, verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. The purpose of keeping the disciples is that so they would be unified a Christ-centered community. And it, it sounds a little confusing when you really try and read this closely and you see Jesus pray to the Father, uh, the glory you have given me, I have given to them. There is power in that statement. What he just said is that the, the glory, the, the manifestation of God's character and his person is in now the visible work and person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, Father, you gave that to me 
and I gave that to them. Meaning, I gave them me, literally. My body broken on the cross for them. Grace Church, God gave us himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is why a Christ-centered community is the only community that will turn the world upside down. It's the only community that has the power to transform the world, not just here, but for all of eternity. And it's a community with Christ at the center. There is no other way. There are plenty of other communities you are a part of. You, you live in a neighborhood. You have a friend group. You have your workplace, your, your sports team. You have your musical group. You have your New Jersey Swamp group. All right, You, you have all these communities, and they are good, and they are upright, and, and, and there can be a lot of good that are going to come out of them. But let's be rest assured, there's only one community that you can be a part of that's going to transform the world and bring the highest glory to God, and that is your Christ-centered community. And the key to a thriving Christ-centered community, Jesus says over and over again, that they would be one. Unity. Unity in truth. That there is a firm belief in the gospel which lifts up Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, the life. Unity in love with the conviction to both love one another and the world we're trying to reach. To not see the world as this enemy that we have to stay away from or we need to fight, but a world that we can reach with compassion. And the church ought to be a picture of unity in diversity. For the more diverse a community of believers is, the more glorified they are as a result. So again, let's talk about these 11 who are, who are there in the moment hearing this prayer. Uh, I, can't, I don't have time to completely unpack just how diverse they are or were, but let's just say they were a motley crew. All right, they come from completely different backgrounds, from completely different socioeconomic classes. You have fishermen and you have tax collectors, you have rebellious zealots, and they were all distinct from one another. But in the name of Christ... They were one. The picture Jesus gives to describe this is none other than God himself. The nature of a triune God. Three distinct persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and yet one God. Like if that makes your head hurt a little bit, like join the club. All right? But that is what we see in the word that it's only a triune God who has existed for all of eternity in perfect community and perfect fellowship with one another that they could model this. And it's only a triune God that salvation is possible because it's only a triune God who could send himself for the atonement of sins. God is distinct and yet one. And the church ought to reflect this. And the importance and effectiveness in a church is only going to be important as effective as how unified they are. So last weekend, um, our elder board met. We, we, we try and do two meetings a month. One is what uh, we call just a shepherding meeting, just an opportunity to pray, not business decisions, not money, just come alongside one another in the call to pastor and shepherd the congregation. And, and I began this meeting by asking them, hey, what are just one or two things you're encouraged by by Grace Church right now? Like, like what, what are just one or two things that are just stirring your heart for the work God is doing through Grace Church 
that we went around and nearly everyone made a comment about the unity of this church. Not only amongst the board, but amongst the congregation, right? And it, just, it was just an awesome moment to just celebrate that because many have been a part of churches that in the past where, where there was just so disunified, disunified, like even in a hostile church culture, the, mo- the biggest threat to a church is internal. We know that, right? And, and to be able to just give glory to, for God to, of how he has bound us together in such a way where we're ready and able to make a significant impact in the world that we live in. And, and unity doesn't mean groupthink. It doesn't mean we're all just saying yes and amen to the same things. There is diversity in unity. And unity doesn't mean we always agree. Unity doesn't mean there's not tension sometimes. I mean, there's fishermen and there's tax collectors and there's zealots. It's going to be a little friction, you know what I'm saying? But there's a way in the church where disagreement is done in such a way that shows you're unified. Just like in any relationship, a healthy marriage is not a marriage where they never disagree. But there's a way to disagree that shows unity. And so when we think about a Christ-centered community that we want to model here at Grace Church, we don't just want one kind of person. We're not like, hey, we're after one kind of person that we need to get in because otherwise they'd mess up the unity. That is far from the truth. In fact, if you um, look around and you don't see somebody who's like you around here, the plea is, stay, we need you. Because we don't have a lot like you in your gift set or your demographic or your economic class or your race or your age group. We want to be as diverse as possible with one thing in common, and that is Jesus Christ is our Savior. So if Christ is at the center, man, let's be as different as we can. So we've uh, launched three new grace groups this fall, and I'm leading one of those groups, and we met for the first time this past week. And we're sitting in our living room, and it just hit me as we were starting that in this one group, we had people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, amongst 12 of us there, from all different career paths, all different backgrounds of faith, where some are wrestling through things of faith, others are brand new believers, others have been walking with the Lord their entire lives. And it just hit me in that moment, like it has hit me in small groups in the past, that if it were not for Jesus Christ, this group of people would never be in the same living room by choice. And yet, here we all were, unified in purpose, completely diverse in everything else. And it was great. But being unified while great, that's not even the end game. Jesus tells us why being kept and then why being unified is so vital. Third, a Christ-centered community or a people that witness. So we are a people that are kept. We are a people that are unified. And we are a people that witness. Verse 18 As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Verse 21, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. 
Last week when we looked at Christ-centered worship out of Isaiah 6, we ended by showing how worship always moves God's people towards mission. And in the same way, we see here how Christ-centered community also moves us along toward mission. The purpose of the church is to go make disciples, right? Everything the church does, we got to get moving in that direction. we got to get to mission. we got to show how every little program, every ministry, every purpose has an angle that leads us towards mission. If not, then we're just playing church. But if we're doing church the way God has called us to do church, it's going to get ourselves to mission. And community done right, with Christ at the center, will empower us to be an unstoppable witness. We get to strengthen one another inwardly by his word in order to be equipped to serve outwardly and be a witness to a world that does not yet believe him. And so we'll get there. We'll, we'll get to an entire week on mission in two weeks. But, but as we close this morning, let me just lay out the challenge that how seriously you're taking the mission and purpose of God that he has placed on your life will be made evident by how seriously you take community. The encouragement for each of us here is not to simply watch what's going on here, but to be part of it. Like, listen, it's way more fun to play than it is to watch from the sidelines. And when we have all different roles, all distinct in our gifts and our callings and our personalities and all the lanes we run in, but we are all running under the same banner of Jesus Christ, that's power. It's way better to be in and among than to choose to hang on the fringe. And so as we close this morning, like community, wherever two or three are gathered, there you have community. But we also have um, lanes that we can run in and ministries that we really want to encourage that are going to really show where community can be done on a regular basis, life on life. Um, first is just membership. To formally identify with a local church body that is committed to carrying out Christ's mission. So the call is, is to attend a membership class. And, and here's why I think it's important. Because when we say membership, and based on your experience, you hear membership, that might not be the same thing. In fact, I'm pretty sure we're going to be probably far off, and that class just gives us an opportunity to, to share why we have such a strong conviction from the Word of the importance of formally aligning yourself with the community of faith, how it leads to mission, how it embodies community. Second, to bring this sermon full circle from how it began with the video, Grace Groups. We have over a dozen groups that our director, Rachel Caldwell, would love to just get you plugged into and more information about, about how to connect with the body here, right? And, and listen, I know, right, grace groups, there's certain seasons of life or things that just, it just doesn't work. So my question to you, my challenge to you is if, if grace groups are not going to work, where are you going to get community in? Where are you going to have opportunities to actually engage with people within this community that's not Sunday morning? You're going to have to think creatively and winsomely. Maybe it's early morning. Maybe it's lunchtime. Maybe it's one-on-one -on -one discipleship. But grace groups is where you can cultivate meaningful relationships that go deep, that are based on his word, and that lead you to mission. 
So membership in grace groups, it's not an exclusive list. There are a ton of ways to do community, but those are two on-ramps I just want to highlight. Life-on-life discipleship, where God will keep us. He'll keep us persevering through the community of his church. He will unify us in the midst of diversity, and he will strengthen us to be an effective witness to those around us. Let's pray. Father, we lay ourselves before you and before your word. We just pray that it would um, convict us where we need to be convicted and then affirm us where we need to be affirmed, Father. And we know that your word is double-edged and it can do both. And we just thank you for community. We thank you for this community and for everybody who's a part of it on all different steps in the journey, yet all unified under one purpose. And that is to carry out the call that your son, Jesus Christ, has put in our life, Father. Give us the courage to take the next step. Give us the courage to walk alongside one another for your glory, for our joy, and for the good of the world. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen.